This episode of JJ Meets World is brought to you by Natalie Deutsch of Hatch Realty. Natalie has a proven track record to get your home sold faster and for more money. She is consistently focused on her clients' needs and wants throughout the entire process and make sure that they are well taken care of. If you're looking to buy or sell, reach out to Natalie today. On average, Natalie sells a home every 3.74 days. That's at least two a week. And last year, Natalie earned her clients on average over $4,000 above list price on their homes. And you don't have to take our word for it. Here's some of the great reviews Natalie has received. I was overwhelmingly impressed with Natalie and all the Hatch team. She was very responsive and responded to all of the emails within an hour. She gave great advice and encouragement from the listing and pictures, the offer and all the closing details, the marketing team knew exactly how to promote my property and I was pleased by how soon and easily my property received an offer. I was actually dreading selling my condo and Natalie did such an awesome job that I felt like I really didn't need to do anything. The thing I most appreciated was that she really listened to what I wanted to do and respected my decisions. I would definitely recommend Natalie and all the Hatch Realty team. They made this process so wonderful. That was from Diane. So listen, if you're in the mood to buy or sell a home, give Natalie a call right now. You can reach her at 701-388-9338, Natalie, N-A-T-A-L-I-E, at hatchrealityfm.com, or you can go to livefargomorehead.com, that's livefargomorehead.com, and find out some information. Huge thanks to Natalie Deutsch of Hatch Realty for sponsoring JJ Meets World. Hello, JJ Meets World listener. If this is the first episode, welcome. If this is your 100th episode, welcome back. Our guest today is Academy Award winner uh, Richard Edlund. He's the man who designed the special effects, the visual effects for movies like Star Wars, Raiders of the Lost Ark, uh, gosh, Ghostbusters, Die Hard, and the list goes on and on and on and on. This man shaped your childhood he shaped the way your imagination perceives things in movies oh my gosh this is a big deal for us and uh, i think you're also going to hear some very interesting stories and find out about how the imagination of a guy who was born in fargo north dakota led to some of the most iconic movies of all time so sit back relax and enjoy this episode of jj meets world one, two, three, four. J.J. Gordon, sort of like that Indiana Jones in that he's always snipping out his next adventure. Yes, he is! He's always interviewing guests so he can have them on his show and they can talk about pop culture, arts, and leisure. J.J. has his flag unfurled and he likes his french fries curled and he's fun and then he twirls as he goes to meet the world. He will march into the rain even if his ankle sprain. Take a peek at Inside his brain, this podcast is called JJ Meets World. When I was a kid, the first time I saw the movie Gremlins, it scared the bejesus out of me. And I remember, like, even today when I watch that movie, which has become one of my favorite movies, I still get. It only gets mentioned on the podcast about once every other episode. Yeah, right. <laughs> I maybe mentioned quite a bit about Gremlins. I've got a feeling. Now, that feeling, I, I get a similar feeling from other movies from my childhood. Because when you experience something as a kid and it grabs your imagination and just kind of shakes it, 
it really like it kind of changes you a little bit, right? And there are the people out there. We're seeing that now with the Star Wars universe, where the fans of the Star Wars universe are now being given the keys to the kingdom uh, to create something new. So, yeah. Gremlins three, should it ever happen, will be probably helmed by someone who saw Gremlins when they were a little kid, and. If you get a franchise where you're lucky enough to interact with someone who's a part of the original one and you treat them with the respect that they deserve, you can really see something magical take place. Um, You've really gamed this out in your head. I have a lot. But it, it matters to you and that's why. It's a, it's big time. In fact, you're a Star Trek fan, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So I was thinking about this. When we were getting a chance to interview today's guest, Richard Edlin, Academy Award winner uh, in the realm of special effects. You know, he worked on Star Wars, right? Right, right, right. Okay. But, so, but I know you're a Star Trek fan. Yeah, like, yeah, at heart. yeah, yeah. In Star Trek Generations, okay. when they invite the old crew onto the, the, the maiden voyage of the new Enterprise. Right. I believe it's Kirk, it's Scotty, and it's Walter Koenig uh, Chekhov. Yep. And everyone on deck is excited because they are there. And they're not there to, to lead it, right? Right. They are there to they're kind of publicity pass the stunt torch. Almost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, they're, they're, Kirk is a little begrudging, if I remember correctly. He is. He certainly, in fact... Wants his ship back. It's the one, because doesn't he, t- he talks to Bones beforehand about, like, how it's kind of, he feels like he's being put out to pasture, Right. I don't think Bones is in that one. Maybe he is. Maybe it is. Don't Bones they have like a drink them. before the? Before I don't. Remember. I have to go back and watch it. I guess yeah. I'm not as big of a Star Trek fan as I thought I was. <laughs> as you thought you were, but that I think is an in, it's an interesting feeling where you respect the past while right. moving on to the future, and so many of the franchises that Richard Edlin was a part of have gone on 30, 40 years later. They defined cinema. I mean, they, they, did. they really did. Any pop culture that gets made now and in, in, that's an action movie of any type is basically got Star Wars DNA in it, which, of course, had previous things before it as well. But a, everything kind of... That, that's the high watermark as far as it's, it seems. Uh, what am I trying to say here? It changed the game in a way that I don't think we've seen anything change the game since then. We've seen cosmic shifts in cinema and technique, but I don't think anything had the kind of meteoric impact that Star Wars did. And Richard was absolutely integral to that. And what I thought was super interesting when we talked to him, and he's talking about his time in the Navy mm-hmm. and filming, you know, ships doing different stuff. You just got to imagine that that creeps into Star Wars in some way. It'd be interesting to see some of the films he shot while part of the Navy to see like, oh, okay, see how like the way this torpedo shoots out like this. We saw this exact same shot, you know, from an X-Wing. Right. And we should say too, the reason Richard was in Fargo in the first place, he was born in Fargo, lived here until he was in the sixth grade. And then uh, he got invited back here for the uh, 2019 Fargo Film Festival to receive the Ted M. Larson Award. And I know for Greg, who is the other guest today, Greg Carlson, repeat, uh, JJ Meets World guest. Um, he, it was a real. He's like the John Goodman SNL of JJ Meets World. Right, right. He him might or, as well be a cast member. We have to double check, but between him and Kevin Kennedy. 
we're not positive because Kevin Kennedy's had a, n- mm. a good number as well. But I know that having Richard in town here was a very, uh, I'm going to say the term again, high watermark for Greg because he got to interview Richard on the stage at the Fargo Theater, which was where Greg first saw Star Wars in 1977. So... That was he, which was the movie that really solidified his love for cinema and got him on the path he was into. So, this whole episode is like just loaded with meaning uh, for us and for Greg. It's pretty neat. Uh, I also still tell a story about uh, a bad and ill fated sleepover uh, <laughs> from my youth that Greg then that night told to a room of 800 people. So, uh, imagine that. Uh, and you might say, like, well, you put it on a podcast. A podcast is different than, a, like, 800 people laughing at you. Um, you get to control the narrative yourself. Yeah. Let's not waste any more time. Let's get into this. Richard uh, Edlund, uh, kind enough to give us uh, even more time than we had even asked for. Uh, this episode of JJ Meets World is, uh, I, I mean, this is a next step for us, too. Yep. This, this guest is uh, world famous. Uh, people like Steven Spielberg and George Lucas keep him in their cell phone when they've got a question to ask. So, folks, enjoy this episode of JJ Meets World with Richard Edlin. And remember, our Patreon account is patreon.com slash JJ Meets World. JJ Meets World. Uh, so I was uh, kind of disappointed because I thought, oh, well, I because I, I had read somewhere that you were raised in Fergus Falls. I'm like, sure, born in Fargo, well, raised it, in Fergus Falls. Good. Wrong. Let's write that wrong right here. So right. born in Fargo, raised in Fargo. Yeah, up until the middle of the sixth grade. And uh, so th- that made you go to what elementary school then? Agassiz. Agassiz? That's well, I, I lived on 11th Street South, 11th and 10th. Oh my, approximately. I'm, I'm two, I live two blocks away from where you used to live yeah. right now. <laughs> and I used to walk backwards into the, into, the, into the wind going to school when it was 19 below. You know. It made you a hardy person, though, I didn't know, it? I it did. It made me believe. It made me into a believer. That's true. Years later, when people were complaining about, uh, you know, like 45-degree weather in L.A. being, you know, the closest thing you can get to the Ice Age, would you turn around and say, like, uh, listen, when I went to fifth grade, uh, I was walking in the wind, and it was right. 19 below. Yeah, with my face wrapped in a, in a scarf. But, you know, because it was painful, to, and you had to breathe slowly because it was painful. Oh, I know that know? so well. But anyhow, I'm so bored with L.A. weather. Because every day it's sunny. You get sick of that after a while. You, I can you, imagine. Oh, I wish it would snow here. You know? How much snow would you be cool with, though? At what point? Oh, three or four feet, you know? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I was, it was, you, you said, hey, we've still got some snow on the ground. You were glad to see that yeah, snow. Yeah, I was, I was hoping that it hadn't all melted mm-hmm. off already. Mm-hmm. So, Richard, how do you end up in Fargo till sixth grade? And then having the amazing, accomplishing career that you did in the movies. Well, I have to, I have to give a lot of credit to my dad, who, 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 who basically, the company he was working for in Fargo was, was starting to wane. And so we had to, we had, he had to find some other job. And he was in the truck body business. <clears throat> and basically, so what we did is, is go to Minneapolis. So he figured that he might be able to find something in Minneapolis. So we, he went to Minneapolis, and while he was in Minneapolis looking for a job, I was staying with my grandparents in Fergus Falls. And I went to, to Lincoln School there for half a year. And uh, 
So I mean, it was it was a great childhood. I mean, every every um, school year, I went to school in Fargo. Up and the last day of school, we were packed up and ready to go to Otter Tail Lake. And I spent the summers summers in the water at Otterdale Lake, you know. And you, you uh, swam at the Island Park Pool in Fargo, right? Yeah, I did. And what are some of the other early Fargo landmarks you you remember? Fargo land. Well, the A and P. St- I mean the uh, the N P station. Uh huh. When I was eight or nine, uh, Harry, uh, Harry Truman came through on a on a whistle stop, so I got to see the 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 uh, the president that beat Dewey, and uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, I mean, it, and and so I mean, I had a, I had a really good time in in Fargo, and actually, my my parents' best friends were Walt Schramm, who was a, who was the leading photographer at the time in Fargo, and he had a studio just across the tracks. There was a building, the first building on Broadway, that, um, and he had a second store, a photographic studio. And uh, he, he used to come and visit with his with his retouching artist uh, Marion, and they were like a pay, they were like an item. I mean, we didn't talk about that them. I mean, they weren't married, but you know, probably you know. So anyway, friendly, friendly, and so she was quite a quite a dish too. Nice dark haired lady, and uh, so she, they, they would come out to the lake, and and he would bring his four by five camera. So I have these great photos of me as a kid on my way. To, uh, and then, then, then my dad, um, we moved to Minneapolis. I, I did seventh and eighth grade there, and then that that wasn't working out so well. And then my 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 uncle and my mom's sister moved my aunt. They they moved out to to Covina in California, and so we he decided, well, let's 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 try uh, Los Angeles. And so we moved out here to I mean out there, being here and not there. Um, and, and he got a good job in, in a company in Montebello and, uh, and so I wound up going to school there and I got involved in, in photography. I had a really great photographic teacher there and I was taking photographs of the, uh, of the, I got involved with the LA Examiner Scholastic Sports Association, which, which, uh, enabled me to, to go from school to school. I photographed it meant most all of the schools in, in L.A., football, basketball, track, cheerleaders. I did some, you know, cheesecake cheerleader shots. And... Um, and then I... Then, then I, I... In high school, I heard about this day in the Navy through the examiner and they, and they, they sent us out on this recruitment uh, campaign that the Navy had put on and they, they had a, like a cruiser and two destroyers that went out about 30 miles nautical miles and then <laughs> and uh, as they've been told and so basically uh, they, they, there was a submarine that came by and then it fired torpedoes you know so we saw torpedoes shooting through the, there they were dropping depth charges over the fan tail, at which point I was luck- unluckily straddling the five-inch gun. I felt like I got kicked in the nuts. <laughs> but anyway, I know you'll have to clean that up. <laughs> no, oh, no, no, nuts is Don't fine. worry, yeah, we, can, we can yeah. make that work. But anyway, yeah, my son can hear that. <laughs> a, a week later, I mean, I had such a great time. I was with my friend Wally Moore. We were the, the chief photographers for the SSA. 
And so basically we both joined the Navy the next week. And you were only 17. I was 17. My parents approved, and I turned 18 in boot camp. So basically I was a kiddie cruiser, which meant that I only had to serve three years. And the first year was almost completely at boot camp, prep school in Norman, Oklahoma. They had Navy had a Navy base in Oklahoma. Figure that one out. <laughs> it was naval air. But anyway, and then I wound up going to the uh, Naval Photographic School in Pensacola. And that had to have been one heck of an education, too. Oh, yeah. I imagine you were learning from people who were bringing back real-time war footage from back in the day, passing that skill on. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, the naval photographic system was pretty intense. And, and basically, uh, the, I had to first go to Norman to learn. They had this intense school that you had to go through. It was an operational clerical, because it's an operation clerical rate, and you had to go to this prep school and uh and i had to i had to go from polynomials to calculus learn all the laws of physics uh learn the naval supply system and how to order things learn uh all i had to be able to identify ship aircraft ship silhouettes aircraft silhouettes type 30 25 words a minute and all this in, in in six weeks. I mean, we were we were we had tests every other day, and and it was a fantastic experience. I mean, oh, that sounds amazing. It was like this funnel of knowledge just being pumped into my brain. You know, do you think you could still identify some of that era aircraft by silhouette? Probably could. <laughs> That's good. Then they taught you well. It's if, sticking if it, with you. If it came to it, I would. You know, I'd be able to pull it out. But then I went to Naval Photographic School in Pensacola, and on the way I went, I flew in my first aircraft from um, from uh, Pensacola to Houston in an in an, uh, D, an old DC three, and then took a train from Pen from Houston to Pensacola down through the bayous, down the, the the southern southern Texas and the bayous, and 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 through Louisiana, Mississippi, and and uh, on through to Florida, and That's and 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 when I got to Houston, they had the colored waiting rooms, colored drinking fountains, you know the the whistle stop thing. They you know no col no colored were allowed inside this inside, and this is all mystery to me because uh, I had black friends and Mexican friends and all kinds of different colored friends in Holly in L.A. and we didn't think about that kind of stuff here, but. It was amazing to see that. And when I was in when when I was in Pensacola, or no, when I was in New Orleans, we had a like a two hour train delay there, and so we went out and checked out Bourbon Street, and couldn't do much more than look at the outsides of the buildings. But we were walking down the street, and there was this old black man that saw us coming, and he got off the off the street, and while I was walking in the walk off the got off the sidewalk and was walking in the street. So that had, that had to have been a a real culture shock. It was, and a real change. And then when we went through, we we stopped at every train station. It was a whistle stop thing, and we stopped at all these train stations with these antebellum uh, train stations that were had the you know the 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 hexagonal tile floors and the and the beautiful walnut finished carpentry and it, and 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 then the, the the black folk had to had to wait outside next to the track. 
Did that? So, I mean, you're painting a pretty vivid picture. So this must have been something that stayed with you for a long time. Absolutely. I mean, it was a great experience. And then, and then I spent, you know, spend the time in 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 Florida, you know, studying somewhat because I was I already knew that stuff pretty much. I was a pretty accomplished photographer already. Played a lot of pool. Oh, did you? Yeah. You know, we've got the largest pool hall in the Western Hemisphere in North Dakota, in Fargo now. Really? Yeah. Oh, I had to go check that out. Yeah, it's pretty neat. A lot of people make a pilgrimage every single year there. Oh, right. And I only know that because I helped them with the marketing, so I know (laughs) all of the words. Well, they had a a pool hall like that in Oklahoma City. I used to to take, on weekends, I'd go into Oklahoma City, and they had one of these fantastic old pool halls like they had in The Hustler. Yeah. they They had the sunken thing deal with the bleachers around the side of it mm-hmm. and the poo table down there and uh they had the six by 12 snooker tables i mean it was it was, it was a fantastic pool hall you know it, it would make sense with your military photography experience how that might affect the dna of star wars but i'm kind of bummed there was no pool scene in the Mos Eisley cantina that's right it could have been very weird yeah. uh, <laughs> weird contract you know right weird Weird shape pool. Yeah, but you know when you think about how you put your eye line when you're you when you get down there and yeah. when you're going to hit the cue ball. That's true. Like that. I mean, that's an eye. You know, that's, yeah. that's a, visual layout. Going you got to play the angles. You know, and and you mm-hmm. know when you're doing bank shots. Right, you're cutting yeah. the diamonds, aren't you? Mm-hmm. You know, on the side of the table. <laughs> um, I usually won. Oh, did you? Yeah. Did you have like a pool hustler name? No, but I but I there was this pool there was this pool hustler that was always trying to get me to play f- for money. And I did. I knew he was a hustler, because uh, because you know I I'd, I'd play him once in a while, every once in a while. And I'd usually beat him, but not always. You know. Oh yep. yeah. Yep. You know. What was the movie you were on where you lost a game because oh. you you hit you oh, sank yeah. the when eight? I, when I did many years later, when I did Multiplicity with with uh, Harold Ramis and 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 Michael Keaton's playing four parts, uh, and we had motion control scenes for the first shot. And then all the other scenes had to had to fit into that scene, and and we had a trailer full of computer geeks and and artists that would that would do composites between the takes, so that that our Harold could see the first two takes composited together, and then then we would do the third, and then he'd see that one composited on, and then he'd see the fourth, and they they had no idea what was going on inside this forty foot trailer, you know. <laughs> They just think so it's, you gotta, it's just happening. It's, you know, just so... Be, so because it, t- it, 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 but, it took but, so much work, yeah, you be, had time to shoot some pool. Well, because it took 45 minutes for Harold to... I mean, for, for, for uh, Michael to change character and change makeup and, and, um, and wardrobe, rather than sitting around on the stage, Harold had a pool table put in. And so we'd shoot pool between takes. Well, they, you got to keep busy somehow, right? That's right. What was Harold's? And the thing game? is, if you lost, then you had to call winners, and it might be three or four more takes if you'd have to wait out. So I didn't want to lose. Sure. How was how good was Ramus at uh, pool? Harold was pretty good. Yeah. yeah. Earlier today, and then, I... and then we had a, a we had a um, a rap party at a pool hall because we were all pool nuts by then, and and so. Um, so there were like quite a number of, of you know it was like a like it was like a uh, like a football thing and and we you know we 
people would play each other, and then the, the winners of those would have to play two the one the two put the together your own tournament, be, be huh? Tournament. Yeah. There you go. That's the word I was looking for, <laughs> and and so as it turned out, I was like the winner on one side, one 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 of the Bracket. sets, and 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 the there was a girl that somehow was the one that won on the other side, and then when we came on when we pl- when I'm playing her. I run all the I ran all the solids off, and she hadn't made a ball yet, and so I snookered myself on the yeah. eight ball and lost. <laughs> I, I was going to say that earlier today. I asked, you know, I, we were talking with some students, and we listed some of the names of these giants that you've worked with closely: George Lucas, Steven Spielberg, Mike Nichols, you know, uh, mm. and on and on. And I said, "Who's the nicest person in Hollywood?" Harold Ramis. May he rest in peace. He was such okay. a great man. I had an opportunity. To be, I, so I went to Second City. I was a Second City guy oh, in really? Chicago. And I got to meet him at the 50th anniversary. Oh, he's and great. He was he was the type of guy where I was starstruck talking to him, being that he was in SCTV, of course, right, things right. like Ghostbusters, the things I grew up with. And he was more interested in who I was as a person. And I had, mm-hmm. I had never That's met Harold. that. It was you know, amazing. Cause he was always trying to learn, you know, and, and he had, you know, he, you know, that he was, he had the joke before the second city was he was the curator of jokes for playboy. Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I mean, that's a great job, right? I mean, that's something you put on your resume for sure. Um, JJ happens to be a huge fan of Ghostbusters. Yeah. And if mm-hmm. if you tell JJ what you have in your personal collection, he might pass out right now. You should tell yeah. him what, what you have. Well, you know what I don't have is stuff that I sold. I mean, I had like these these lever things for the for the Marshmallow Man and, and the... The, the the latex was all gone, but there were there were pieces left. I had a warehouse full of stuff for ten years, and and among those I had Gozer Temple. Yeah. Oh man. And, I mean, which is like twelve feet tall. That is so cool. And, <laughs> that is so cool. And I had, uh, you know, I had like the um, the haunted house from Tales from the Crypt, the opening shot that we did with Zemeckis. Oh, I'm very familiar with that as well. And and so I mean and so I mean it was I had a lot of stuff and a lot of big stuff, and and so I had I, it was a thousand feet with a mezzanine, wow. And then uh, after about ten years, I'm thinking, this is costing me about twelve grand a year. I mean, is this what what am I doing this for? You know, mm-hmm. and and so I decided to 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 clear out the warehouse, yeah, liquidate some of that stuff, yeah, and. Turn it into gitas, <laughs> some greenbacks, and so yeah, I got I made about two hundred thousand dollars in in uh. auction sales. So okay, so uh, it probably cost two million or something like that to make all that <laughs> stuff. You know. So I I want to dive into this as part of it, and of course you know Tucker and Greg, you guys hop in on this thing too, but. So when you've had a career that's as accomplished as yours, you you talk about you've got a, a huge warehouse full of stuff. Is are are there are there things nowadays people don't throw away at least to my knowledge they're not throwing away as many things as they used to so just letting them walk away and end up in collections because 
you know, I know Warner Brothers likes to do their on their tour. They curate museums with a lot of these right. things. They're not throwing away stuff from the Harry Potter series because it's going to be worth money one day. But some of this stuff doesn't. It has a very finite shelf life. You know, you talk about latex. I've seen foam creatures that over twenty years the foam breaks down. Is that something that people in your career are looking at? How do we preserve some of these pieces of history? Yeah, I mean the thing is that. For example, I mean, one of the things that I sold, a bunch, I sold a bunch of stuff from Fright Night, and we had some, some angel wings, and we had some bat wings, and we had this bat that, that flew down the wire, <clears throat> and, and that stuff sold at auction, and it was flaking and falling apart, but it was bought, it was bought by Tom Holland, who was the director of Fright really? Night. So Tom bought a bunch of that stuff, and then he paid these model guys to rebuild it. Mm. And so you can do that. And, and, and then maybe the next guy that gets it, because it's a classic. I mean, Fright Night is one of the great classic so modern drac. you know, modern. Yeah. It's great. Fantastic. Oh, vampire yeah. film. It's, well, and the, 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 the humor of Fright Night mm-hmm. is so good. Yeah. I'm not a big fan of the remake so much. Oh, no, that sucked. Yeah. Right. Oh, I mean, good. Was, I'm glad you can say that. that. I mean, oh, but I mean, it's like, why did they do that? Well, they yeah, did wow. that with Poltergeist. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Why did they another, try to remake a classic like that with the, the same story mm-hmm. and and third-rate actors? Was it Ebert who said, why don't they remake bad movies yeah. instead of good movies? <laughs> like, they're always remaking the good ones. Right. Remake a bad one and make it into a good one. Make right. it good the second time around. Like White Zombie with Bela Lugosi. I'd love to see that remake. Right. Right. It's a terrible movie. Or Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. Oh, yes. <laughs> I would watch that. <laughs> I guess it would it would make sense or though too that now Plan Nine from Outer Space. Oh, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Glenn or Glenda would love that. Mm, my um, the but also now that there's been this massive transition from special practical effects to computer effects. I mean, there just aren't even as many assets that could be stored somewhere that aren't just completely digital now compared to what it used to be. Besides maybe costume pieces and some simple hand props. Though interestingly, First Man won this last year and it won i mean there were a lot of miniatures i mean ian hunter built a lot of that stuff in miniature and then and then that landscape the 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 moonscape which i thought god what a great miniature that is it wasn't a miniature Mm -hmm. that they they actually dressed a field like Mm -hmm. that lit it with one massive light you know and uh, and and with the with the with the cameras having the sensitivity they have nowadays they they could shoot it and get depth of field and and it, that was a great looking movie, but I mean the 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 uh, the booster rockets and all those parts that was all miniatures. Really? So so you can actually and the thing that happens with miniatures that doesn't happen with the digital world is the happy accident. The thing that happens during shooting that makes it into a much more interesting shot mm-hmm. because it's, it's something that came to mind, you know. Uh, all of a sudden, or it's something that happened that shouldn't have happened that actually looks better. I mean, all these kind of things happen in the analog world that don't, because in the digital world, you have to design everything. Nothing happens unless it's ma- unless it's thought about first. One when, of the examples you gave of the happy accident uh, was with the cloud tank. Yeah, and I well, love that story because I, to me, and and if the if the, if the listeners don't know, you can. Tell them what a cloud tank is in, in shorthand because it's I, I always geek out. It's my my favorite kind of visual effect. 
Well, the guys, that, the guys that pioneered that were on Close Encounters, actually. I mean, it was it was beautiful. Hoyt Hoyt Yeatman and and uh, and what's his name? I'll think of it in a minute. Uh, Scott Squires. So those two guys were the two young Turks that worked with with Trumbull on on that. And 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 basically, what you do with a cloud tank is you fill it up. It's a it's a first of all, it's about a six foot square and five foot deep tank. And it's maybe inch and a half thick glass because the, the refraction of light. You don't want to you know, have it's that. It's just or? the weight of water. Sure. No. You know, if you make it thinner, it'll just bre- it'll just break. So, so it's a it's it's made out of you know, uh, uh, st- it's a steel weldment with with uh, with steel corners. And, and you're just you're putting sheets in putting sheets of, okay. of yeah. glass in and and then uh, silicone and. And, and once you have the tank, you fill the tank half full of filtered water that, that has been saturated with salt. So it's a salt saline saturated solution. Once you get that in there, you put a piece of plastic on the, on the surface of it, and then you carefully fill the rest of the tank with clear water, fresh water. Then you carefully roll the plastic up, take it out, and you, what you have now is an inversion layer that's going to stay that way for quite a while. And so then with, with, we had this atomic arm, we called it. It's like a parallelogram. It's, you, you can basically move this back here, and, and, the, and, and, and it moves the, the, uh, the squirting device on the other end the way you want. And you can actually scale that also. You can scale the motion to where you move here and it moves faster. Or you can move them faster here and it's slower. So all of this kind of stuff is, is tweakable. And then you squirt basically pair. Uh, it's basically tempera paint through jets in, in a tube. And, and you squirt that over the surface and they're unequal size, and they're just a little bit different in each one. So you, so it, it, it's, it's, so you get a cloud formation that rolls towards you, and and one day, by the way, I mean, so you can get great clouds like uh, the the evil-looking clouds in Poltergeist, um, the the. Like in, in, in Independence Day too, is that the same kind of cloud look that I don't know probably the same thing probably I don't remember Independence Day but anyway when one day we were on on Raiders we were working on on a on a cloud sky and somebody there's a, there was this drain pipe in the middle of the of the bottom of the of the tank. And it, it and it was like a it was like a fire hose. It was like three inch diameter fire hose let, letting the water out. And while while it was happening, somebody stepped on the fire hose, and it caused a gush of wa- of clear water to shoot back up into the tank. And it and it blew a hole in the in the in the clouds. And I thought, fantastic! That's the that's what we need for the. For when the arc blows off into the sky, and so that's how we discovered that through a through a happy accident, you know. And it was a great shot where you see the arc go tumbling up, and the cloud is op- the sky is opening up. I mean, it's magic, you know. So, so okay, so magic, right? So yeah. magic happens every day when it comes to the movies, and especially when you're building with stuff. Um, 
do, do people come up to you all the time and ask you how you accomplish certain shots? Yeah. Uh, and then are you a little bit like a magician? Is, do you ever keep some of those things close to the chest and leave that for your own secret? Occasionally, but, but for the most part, once you've done it, it's easy to reverse engineer it. And, and so if you're first to do it, then read it and read them and weep. Read them and weep. It's like you lay out your royal flush, you know. And 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 so, uh, yeah. I mean, the thing is, once it's once you've done it and it hasn't been done before, then you can claim it, and you can't patent it. Probably could, but it, it would cost you more than it's worth. So. So who are your visual effects? Who are your visual effects heroes? Um, I know you mentioned. You know Willis O'Brien. Yeah, well, Willis O'Brien was a, was a great earlier stop motion guy. Um, there's some there were some really good. Um, I think John Fulton at Paramount. You know, you know, do, you know the Ten Commandments, mm-hmm. the Parting of the Red Sea, um, and Harryhausen. Well, Harryhausen too. I mean, I mean, I was not a real nut about Harryhausen. Mm-hmm. You know. I mean, I think Harry Houghton did a lot of a lot of good stuff, but his screenplays were like. I mean, he would use. Yeah. <laughs> sure, sure. He would take the Iliad and shoot it, you know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I'm thinking, and, too. and every frame that he shot got cut in. Right. Yeah. You know? Right. But how about some of the ones that were kind of uh, working at the same time you were working? Well, like Trumbull. Scott, well, Trumbull's a very very talented guy. <coughs> I'm thinking about. Um, Al Whitlock, a matte painter. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I, I did, I, said, I, I shot the first matte painting that he did when he came over from England because he was, he was a student of Percy Day, who was, who was the, primary, he was the, the uh, prime matte painter in England. And actually, I think he was, I think Harrison Ellenshaw was his nephew mm. and, <coughs> and, and, and Peter Ellenshaw was his brother. So... So the Ellenshaws and the Days were, uh, I'm, I'm not brother. They were like blood relatives, and they, and so I'm I'm not sure exactly which which relative they were, but they were close relatives, and and they all had similar talents, and and so so there were there were those guys. And, do you okay? So do you have a lot of young people coming up to you today saying, "Gosh, I want to get into the effects industry." And they've got a reel on their phone of something that they've done, and they just they want they want to show you. Well, the thing is, I'm not hiring these days. I'm I'm kind of off doing other things right now. But I think that if somebody somebody wants to get in the movie business or in the visual effects business, which is getting tougher and tougher because there's more and more super talented people clamoring to get in uh, that are coming out of like a hundred, literally a hundred schools. You know, and uh, I mean, I remember seeing the animation magazine, and I, there were page after page of schools that had animation studies and 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 visual effects. Um, so so the the business is being populated by a lot of talented people, but at the same time, if you look at the if you look at the roll ups of the of the uh, of the credits of let's say Avatar, there are like five or six truck five or six columns wide and they're, and they're going by at 35 miles an hour and if if your name is in there you'd have to hit you have to hit a hold frame in order to find it you know 
uh, I mean, it's, so there's like 2,000 people working on the show. So, so the business has expanded. I mean, as opposed to Star Wars, which we had like 60 or 60, 70 or 80 maybe people, uh, not at the same time, uh, working on the show. I mean, usually it's about 50 or 60. And in two years, we did 365 com- optical composites with all the miniature work. Two and a half million dollars. And I mean, that was like 30, that was 40 years ago. So, I mean, now, I mean, the effects on Avatar were upwards of 120 million. So they so, really should learn budgeting from you is what you're saying. Well, I'm, I, I just say <laughs> that, that part of the art of visual effects is the art of spending money. Yeah. <laughs> how, how much does it change then when... when Filmmakers today don't have the same kind of limitations that they used to, i.e. when you were working on Star Wars, I mean, technology had to be invented, techniques had to be invented to get some of the shots you were talking about, and there was limitations on what you just could do, and therefore you were forced to come up with creative solutions for those limitations versus a computer where you can have, you can call up a million spaceships at, at one moment and give them... AI to do whatever you need them to do and then just let well, them go. you can't go. quite give them AI to do everything yet. <laughs> but beware. But beware. Of right. AI because AI will change the world. And 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 some of the biggest uh, chip makers are investing heavily into this area now. Because they 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 want to come up with more goods that they can sell to the multitudes, you know. Well, did do you felt that you benefited from the limitations that you had at that time? Well, yeah. I mean, I think limitations lead to invention, and inventions is how you is how you make something that hasn't been seen before. So, yes, I think limitations are important to have. You said earlier that audiences today, made up of young people, are spoiled because they've seen everything. That's you can right. see. You used Aquaman as an example, where every shot, the entire thing, is a visual effect. Yeah, and that isn't special compared right. to Star Wars. Well, that's the problem. The problem that you have is that, that, that because now you can do anything and because so, so much that has, is, has been invented is seminal inventions that, that now have subtle emanations, um, you, um, the audience, the young audience, because you can do everything, the young audience has already seen everything. And because they've already seen everything, nothing is ne- necessarily that new to them. So therefore, uh, the director is 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 uh, is saddled with the problem of coming up with stuff that hasn't been done before, which is really hard to do. And and so they basically, it's this is wham bang in your face kind of Michael Bay approach to visual effects. You know what I don't see today that I loved from movies are a good explosion. I don't think that anyone's doing explosions justice to the way that they used to be. I I lived in Chicago when they were filming one of the Transformers movies, and all they did was put rubble on the road, and then when I saw the movie later on and they had all these, you know, big explosions in the back, I said, well, a little pyrotechnics would have gone a long way to, to, you know, for for what was going on. And it's got to be hard. I mean, I I guess I don't know your opinion of actors in general, but it's got to be hard to act against nothing when you're doing it for an entire movie. Right. 
How, how do you react to a tennis ball on a stick? Right. Mm-hmm. Versus being able to go and see a, min, uh, a miniature that's being worked on and say, like, but this the, is the scale but at the same time, I mean, about. when you see how much money we're spending, let's say, Avatar again, is, I mean, not, I mean uh, Aquaman is an example. I mean, you have an actor that has very limited talent, in my opinion. I agree. Mm-hmm. And, and, and he's surrounded by tens of millions of dollars, you know, per paragraph of action uh and 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 so basically that fills in that is a a phenomenal way of putting it they are surrounded by millions of dollars of action on the page right i've never thought about it like that but that is 100 percent true and then of course i i always hate the we'll we'll fix it in post we'll fix it in post why not just fix it right now because it takes time to do that Mm -hmm. and the thing is that that a lot of these line producers will will say cut move on move on but we want to do this it's going to cost to do more to do that up up line he says i don't care move on because the thing is that he's getting a bonus for bringing the movie in on time Oh, he doesn't okay. care that it's going to cost that is a bad extra incentive. millions of dollars. That is a bad incentive. At least it seems to be for our, I understand from a it budgetary happens standpoint. All the time. It seems counterintuitive and the thing is to creative. The studios kind of tend to agree with it because production time is really expensive. Mm-hmm. Right. So can you tell a story from a movie where you had you had an effect shot that you just gosh, it just wasn't going the way you wanted, it wasn't going the way you wanted, and you had a, a breakthrough moment on it? Because I think that's the thing that that I see with young filmmakers today is if they hit a wall, they just give up and they they'll just figure right. it out later. So to I speak. have a pretty good example of, of of something that I I and this is has to do with multiplicity, the movie, and there was a shot in multiplicity where he throws himself a beer can, a can of beer, and the we're bidding against Sony Imageworks, and they, they're thinking about making it a CG beer, beer can, and the guy has to catch a CG beer can. And I'm thinking, you know, that's not a way to stage this. Let's stage it differently. And, and basically, I staged it in, in a way that, that uh, the A scene is, is number two sitting on the couch, and he throws a beer can to number three. And number three is a stand-in. And so then the, then number, number two's stand-in sits on the couch, and number three is in the shot. And he th- throws him the beer can, and number three catches it. The trick is that it went out of frame for like, it went out of frame for like five, four or five frames, and then it comes back in. So you basically only had to make a jump cut. And so basically, it's, it's basically a two-stage st- two composite with a split screen. And you didn't have to have any dig- digital stuff in there at all. I love effects tricks like that. So, I mean, that <laughs> saved a fortune. And, and we got the shot right away. And Harold's just in heaven because it worked so great. And, and, and the, the stand-ins that we had were real smart guys, and, and they took on the characteristic of their, of their 
you know, number two was kind of a macho guy. Number three was kind of feminist, feminine guy. And number four is just a dumb yeah. shit. Hi, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> I like pizza. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is the second time today I've had a conversation about multiplicity, believe it or not, not even, not even knowing that this interview was going to happen. Really? Uh, <clears throat> yeah. So the, it, mu- I must be destined to go home and watch it this weekend. Well, and I'm going to watch that yet? beer scene. Oh no. Mm-hmm. I, oh, I, I'm a big fan of multiplicity. That's a great movie. It is. It's so a there's great another great Eugene shot Levy in, role there's too, another by great the shot in there. And, and the thing about it is, no, no, be dazzled. Did okay. You, yep. Yeah. See the remake of Bedazzle. Yep. With uh, okay. Elizabeth Hurley. Mm-hmm. Yep. Brendan yeah. Fraser. Brendan Fraser. So one of the shots. Brendan is just play. He just wants to play the seven foot six base basketball player. So Brendan's already six three. So I had to make him about another foot taller, and and so the magic number was eighty three percent. So in other words, to make him look like a seven foot six guy, apparent in comparison to the other guys. Is I would shoot the other guys at a certain camera height, and then when I would shoot him, I would move it down to eighty-six percent of the height, <laughs> and so he would then, so then I, then I would, you know, then he would appear taller, and and so there was one scene that we had one of the guys, one of the stand-ins, was really a talented basketball player, and we were looking for six foot and under basketball players, and, and wish me luck, you know, because they're all you know, towers, yep. right? Except, so Norm Nixon was our, he was an ex-Laker, and he was our basketball uh, guy. And so, so we basically, uh, t- he had the, the wig that was just like Brendan, and, and so from the back, it looked just like Brendan Fraser. And so basically, there's this one shot where he's doing, he's going to make a half-court shot and so, and he has an 83, 83% basketball, which costs $5,000. <laughs> it has to be scaled perfectly. It has to be scaled down. And we had an 86, eight, 86% size uh, hoop. And so that whole thing was made 86% of the size of a normal basketball. And we, did, we didn't do the 83% basketball court. but I mean, we still stayed with a full-size basketball court. And so he's here. At, this guy is, is, is like six feet tall, very talented basketball player. He's got the 83% basket, basket. He throws the basket, and he makes the shot. What? From half court, he <laughs> makes the shot. The only problem is, is that it left the frame. Oh. It left the frame for like about 20 frames and then comes back in, and then it lands in the basket and sticks. <laughs> So we had to fix it, right? <laughs> so I had to then, pan, and we we tiled the audience for the, also. So so the audience is like been tiled and have we shoot a section here and then a section, 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 and we had to tilt up off the audience into the into the into the rafters that weren't there. Paint, do a matte painting of that for twenty frames. Tilt back down, so we keep the bat and do a di- digital basket during that part of the shot and then that worked perfect then we had to then get rid of the 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 basket 
the, or the ball in the basket that stuck and then drop another basket, a, a CG basketball through the hoop. And it, it was a great shot. Mm-hmm. And it, but, it, you know, and, and so that kind of, uh, that kind of thing happening is, is, is fabulous. There's an, there was another shot where he does a full shot. He does a, a full court alley-oop. And this guy throws the, the 83% ball all the way to the to the other end of the thing, and and then there's a guy down there that does the alley oop, and and he, he and he was like perfect there. He was like three feet away from making it. He's <laughs> <laughs> got some good aim. And that was a that was a that was a moving shot that I did uh, with a with a handheld camera. Wow, so it's, it's got to be just fascinating because y- your entire career in movies has been an up. It's it's been an upward tick in in technology, but also taking the, you know, also kind of res- respecting the past, right? right. Respecting the, the 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 techniques right. and figuring out just a way, like, okay, is there a different way that we can do this to right. accomplish the right. the end goal? Right. Boy, that's it's got to be. So uh, I'm curious to know your experience in the Navy. Yeah. Do you has that ever come into your oh, yeah, effects absolutely. work? Yeah. First of all, the Navy is where I got interested in movies, because when I got to got, when I got to to uh, Atsugi, which is which during the war was the was the prime Japanese that was like their sack base, you know that was their primary uh, uh, aviation um, base, and when I let's see when I got there, they had, we had the Fleeter Photo Lab. And uh, there, there was about forty of us in the Fleet Air Photo Lab, and uh, and I, at one point I discovered this camera, the the, the Mitchell sixteen millimeter camera in the in the in the warehouse, in the I mean the store in the storeroom, that had been delivered and had been ordered by someone a few a few years ago, and then it was delivered, and then. The guy got shipped out, and and he, it never got opened. Oh. So here's this complete 16 millimeter Mitchell production camera, like sitting there it was waiting, new, waiting, brand to new be, toy. Waiting yeah. To be, yeah, this toy was sitting there waiting to be played with. Mm. And so basically, I went to the to the base library, and I found a book called The Grammar of the Film, and it was a it was an academic book about a study of the of the silent film. The Russian film, the found footage, Eisenstein, all the great you know Russian movies that had been made in the silent era, and which was great for me to learn because we didn't have any sound equipment at the lab, you know. So, sure, so I look- learned I learned how to how to make a silent film and how to set up scenes and and it was just a great it was my bible. I had it kept it checked out for a year, and and so. Um, so anyway, that and and I I did I so I I made um, um, like training films. I did a training film in in this this lab down by uh, down by Yokosuka near the near the ocean, where the transatlantic cable came out or transpacific cable came out. Yeah, and and basically that came out into this into this into this um, this base. And this is where all the top secret 
messages were going to come across the ocean. And this is like in 1960, you know. And so I had, I had one Japanese national as an actor. There was only one switch that I could pull because all the others were not, you know, all the others were not in use and I would be di- disrupting power. <laughs> and, and the thing is that the Japanese power system was such that um, it, it fairly often, all of a sudden, the power would go out and then you don't know when it's going to come back on. So they had like a whole series of generators and they had a whole, a whole, uh, uh, a list of which is the the priority list of do this one first and then while this one's warming up goes through go turn this one off and then and then when this one's warmed up then you throw this switch and then and it was it was it was that kind of a geeky film but i was doing and we had this guy running back and forth and i had the camera down with a wide angle lens you know uh you know and it was like orson wells real sketchy lighting because we only had a couple of a couple of uh, lighting i think we only had three lighting instruments and and so and and it was asa1 asa80 film or something at that time and uh and so basically that's kind of how i got into movies and 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 then there was a there was a there was a uh, full-blooded cherokee indian that was one of the squad leaders at the bay, at the uh, photo lab and I was talking to him one night, and I was thinking I was going to go to work Brooks Institute, which is a, a photographic school in Santa Barbara, and it was a pretty well-known school. And uh, and 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 God, I can't remember his name. He, and he was the only jarhead in the in the in the, in the, we were all sailors. He was the only only Marine. <laughs> anyway, he was a good guy, and he said, "Edlin, you don't want to go to Brooks. You want to go to USC, man." It's, they have the cinema department there, and it's, it's probably the best cinema school in the world, you know, because they, they teach you how to become a filmmaker in, in all different uh, ways. I mean, you have to take writing, you have to take editing, you have to take cinematography, all these different courses in order to become a filmmaker, and, and you become a filmmaker, and then you decide, well, I want to be a production designer, I want to be an editor, I want to be a director, you know, and so... And that's your. So is that where you ended up at USC? Yeah. So I so I made a I, I sent them a letter and said I wanted to come there and and uh, and so they sent me the information the information and that's where I did. I, when I got out of the Navy, I got a job at, at my dad's company. Uh, I was I was first fixing fixing all the tools. Then I was designing air. I got into uh, designing refrigeration systems. Then I got into designing truck bodies, and I was doing this in the mornings. And then I, from 8 to 12, I worked. And then from 12 to 6, I studied. And then from 6 to, you know, then I drove, drove to USC, went to the classes, and I was taking like 20 units or something like that. And I, I was taking real heavy load because I, I wanted to get three uh, school years compacted into two and so i actually i finished my i finished all the all the material i needed to be be, to complete my junior year and then i decided that i wouldn't forego the the production year because i would have to transfer to day school and my 
mother, my parents would have to fund it. And it was pretty expensive in those days. Well, it's still pretty but expensive today. But it's nowhere today. near what it is today. <laughs> so, but, but anyway, so I, I then uh, got, a, got a job in the business. So it, did you spend a lot of time in movie theaters as a, as a kid, or did that passion come from that experience you had starting off with a, a still camera and moving on to it started know, It started with a still camera and moving on to movies. I mean, I always loved movies. And as a kid, you know, I was telling this morning, I saw the, you know, my, the three movies that I remember, the pivotal ones, were Bicycle Thief, which was an Italian neorealist mm-hmm. movie, and then there was the, uh, the Robe, which was the first, well, that was later. I mean, it was in Fargo, it was, it was uh, pa- Destination Moon. Okay, yep. George Pal, mm-hmm. And then there was, um, the other one was uh, Want a Devil. The 3D spear-chucking movie. (laughs) Uh, Media in general is an industry that gets disrupted by technology now faster and faster almost every year. You know, certainly with your work, you know, you were part of the earlier disruptions and, hey, here's a new technique, here's a new way, here's a new visual you can see. Um, But are you able to now extrapolate out into the future a bit and think of or even guess what types of new disruptions we might be seeing uh, in the future, or is it sort of the point now where everything's coming so fast and so quick? Well, you know, actually I have a project that I'm working on with a, with a couple of uh, writers that uh, they have, a, they have a script. It's a series. It's a, it's for a TV, probably an eight part series, like a Netflix series uh, type of thing that, that uh, tells the story of Cuba from the revolution to Kennedy's assassination time, to, from 1950, late 50s to 62, 3. And uh, we have to resurrect Kennedy, Jackie, Meyer Lansky, Castro in, ver- in, you know, in various states, mm-hmm. but convincing. So, so I, I'm so right now we're working on an AI program that will enable us to to uh, teach the computer the personality of these different characters by going back through footage that we find, and it's a very complex process, but rewarding because. And it would be it would be pretty fascinating to to re, to resurrect these characters and 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 the, the script is really a great script. And uh, and it, it actually works backwards. The first script is 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 the is the actual end end of Cuba, and then it goes back and 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 where this one end, where this one begins, the last part, the last one ends. And so on and so on until you get to the to the uh, the beginning of the revolution. Have you seen an example in sort of modern cinema of a resurrection where you're like, hey, they actually got kind of close? Absolutely. There's a great there's a great example of it, uh, and you probably could. It's I think it's on YouTube, and it's it's basically 
Kevin Spacey, did you ever see that thing where Kevin Spacey's talking about, you know, that I really got railroaded. <laughs> yeah. He's in the kitchen and yep. he's got this weird rope. Yep. The weird, One of the most mm-hmm. surreal things to come out of he's last year, the, for the, sure. Yeah, the real, the, 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 he's wearing an apron that has the Santa Clauses mm-hmm. on it. Well, that scene, imagine that scene with Steve Buscemi's face on Kevin Spacey. Okay. But Kevin Spacey's voice and his personality mapped onto Buscemi's face. Huh. And it works. Really? Because I think of even like, uh, you know, Marvel's doing a lot of de-aging. Star Wars movies have brought back Tarkin well, yeah, and Leia. I mean, it's been happening since but- Benjamin Button was like the beginning. But of even those have sort of that, that still that uncanny valley where you go, there's something wrong with what I'm looking at. I'm not seeing. Not too much. Well, I mean, I think, I think the de-aging of, of, uh, of uh, what's his name? Brad Pitt. Wasn't it in Button? Yep. In yep. Benjamin yeah. Button, that was the le- that was the weakest work in Benjamin <laughs> Button. But I thought his aging stuff was really good. But I mean, that was like ten years ago, right? More. Right. So I mean, the thing is, it's it's come a long way, and 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 if you see this Buscemi uh, Spacek thing, mm-hmm. it'll it'll I'll look that up. Yeah, you'll well, you'll see what I mean. I mean, it's like, and it's 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 the uncanny valley has been leapt across. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Interesting. Do you think that there's going to be a, a nostalgic love for physical effects that'll ever have like another heyday through the industry, or do you think that at this point it is so cost prohibitive because so many people have moved away from physical effects that you're really you're seeking out the masters of their craft? Well, look at look at the first man. The first man mm-hmm. has miniatures in it. The, the you know the space the spaceship. And and other shots in that movie are miniatures, you know, and and it won best visual effects last year, probably because the actors all voted for it. But <laughs> and, and 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 they're they're tired of superheroes. <laughs> but anyway, uh, or even Star Wars, it, you know, which which was pretty good work. But then The Force Awakens was another one that. Mm-hmm. that uh, but it, I don't know if they had. Miniature work in a lot, well, a lot, of, a lot of practicals. You know, a lot of the idea like, yeah. that in you know the in Maz Kanata's right. place that you know what what you're seeing is not CG; it's costumes, puppetry. Right, and then you know, then the, the then, the, then the weird characters, mm-hmm. you know, and their that, that animation. So I mean, yeah, I mean, a lot of stuff is being d- uncovered. Um, I think that in the Force Awakens there was a an homage to the earlier uh, the early look. That we generated for for Star Wars, Empire, and Jedi, and the reason that it has that look largely is because of blue spill, because the mm. models were all shot against blue screen, and there had to be a certain amount of fill light to 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 cancel out that blue spill, and so therefore there's fill light in space. But that's part of the look of the movie, mm-hmm. and it, and and nobody nobody complained about that. I mean, it's it that's the look. And they, they and they brought that look back into this to the Force Awakens. Where did you see Force Awakens? I mean, did you did you just like go on opening weekend and no? I, did I you saw, get a, I get saw an it, advance? I saw it at home in my. So you you oh I mean you didn't get to see a sneak preview no. or anything. You waited until it was available on home video. Yeah. To watch. Oh, sorry. 
No, no, <laughs> yeah. no apology necessary. I just, I, I was just thinking like how, I mean, I have, how I have a really good. I am, yeah. I, I imagine I mean, your, your home th- theater. The thing you're talking weird about, about all, the- all this is that you know you have people that are moving away from the theaters to the devices. Right, I'm, I'm one of them, unfortunately. You know, you have mm-hmm. lots of people that are watching movies on their computer or on their cell phones. You know, I or, or at home. Like that, and the thing is that a lot, a lot of it is because the I think a lot of it is because the 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 politeness that used to used to right. be in the theaters is not there anymore. It's, yeah, that's that's that is, that people, is why that's people the main reason. Texting yeah. and talking right. and they're they're I mean they're just <clears throat> I guess dorks, I was yeah, you know agreed. I mean people are you know the p- ladies used to remove their hats please please remove know, your hat. in the theater <laughs> you know what I mean and yeah, smoking in was in the day. balcony right. yeah <laughs> you know. Well, the reason I asked the question about, you know, we seeing, got a crying room in the back. Yeah. <laughs> seeing Force Awakens is that, you know, you describe seeing Star Wars at the Chinese theater. Right. And that experience with all the elements put together, it was, you know, a transformative experience for you, a person who had created and photographed a large and arguably among the most important elements in that movie and yet to hear it right. for the first time with the full William score. And well, that's, that's the thing. I mean, I was, I was telling the students this morning that, that visual effects is kind of like basically a silent business. In other words, the only thing that you hear when you're watching the movie is, Hey, why didn't you do this over there? You could fi- you could, you could fix this this way. Or, you know, people would be, kibitzing about the shot you know but but the thing is and you're going back and forth and back and forth on the shot and and you're you know so so when you finally see it running at 24 in the in the in the screening room as a as an element you say okay that's good we're gonna buy that and then you don't see it again until the until you get in the theater or you, or you you see it in optical when when they when it's composited with the other elements and then then you you say okay that looks good we'll buy it on take five you know we'll we'll buy it and then you don't see it until it's in the theater and and when I when I went to Chinese to see Star Wars and had great seats and all of a sudden on, uh, you know on comes the 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 uh, six track stereo and the far, far away and all that stuff. And the titles that I shot going back to infinity and, and, uh, and then all of a sudden you see this monstrous ship coming overhead and, uh, and Johnny Williams store and the laser blast from Ben Burt. And, uh, I mean, it's like all you, all of a sudden it comes alive with the music and sound, you know, and it was it was pretty breathtaking to me even when when the special editions were released in the late nineties. Did you and your cohorts have any part in that at all, or it was just it time had passed? And no. the only reason I bring it up was so I you know I was born in eighty five. I watched Star Wars on VHS right before those came out. So right like I think the same year the first special edition came out was the first year that I had watched Star Wars. So I had the opportunity to watch it without the uh, special edition editions. Right, the, uh... And then I was able to watch it in the theater and even, you know, 10-year-old me was going, "Oh, that looks way different as a computer only effect than these because I could tell yeah. the shots were added in." Right. So uh, could you speak a little bit about 
where that was then and where you think it is now. I, you've spoken a little bit about Blue Phil, but did you have any feelings about the special well, editions when those came out? Yeah, I mean, the thing is, when George you know, came out with the special edition, I met him outside the theater in L.A., and I said, you know, George, I mean, I, by this time, I'd been competing with ILM on, on jobs, you know, and we get some of them and they get some of them with this new company that I started at Boss. And uh, anyway, so we're standing outside and I said, George, I said, obviously it's your movie, so you can do whatever you want. There's been rumor after rumor about all these changes that have, that have happened, you know. I said, but, you know, like I said, it's your movie. And he says, you know, Richard, do you remember that shot of the land speeder? And I said, oh, <laughs> stop right there. <laughs> and he says, well, you know, I couldn't let the movie go out with that shot like it was. And, and he says, but then we got carried away. And he even, announced, he even admitted it himself. And is he referring to, like, getting rid of, like, the Vaseline-y look underneath the land speeder yeah, and, and the, tattooing? The, and yeah, the, uh, you know, the... Uh, and is the, that the moving, pink sand moving animation right. blob, yeah. you know, moving blob, right? And a P, and you said that one that kind of always made you cringe was because you could see a tire. Well, you you would because George, because Gary shot it because Gary the camera Kurtz, too, yeah. too low, and and if he'd have moved the camera up three feet, it would have been all right. Mm-hmm. But he didn't, and and I wasn't there, so yeah, you weren't in Tunisia. I wasn't. You were nobody in California. Was, nobody, nobody right? Was None there of the for VF, that. I yeah. mean, George yeah. wouldn't have let him do that. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I mean that was a, I guess that was a second unit shot, and Jordan mm-hmm. and Gary mm-hmm. shot it, and so. So anyway, it had to be fixed, and he needed the shot. I mean, there's no way he could do the scene without that shot. And Who was so, your favorite person to work with during that during the ILM, the earliest formation of ILM? Was it Dykstra? Well, yeah, I mean Dykstra and I were were brothers, you know, yeah. in the visual effects. So yeah, I mean John hired me. Because I mean, I guess I, I guess where I'm going is, John hired you, but then John doesn't come back for Empire, and you have to make a decision. Well, John had kind of he, he was very Im, immovable if he felt that he was right, and even if politically it would have been better for him to to th- throw in the towel every now and then, he wouldn't do that. And so, in a sense, I think he kind of he, can't, he cut himself out of it. Was he? Was he ever? Was he mad at you? No, or not he, me. It wasn't. It didn't have nothing to do with me. I mean, me. but when you when he decided he'd moved on, and you said, "Look, I'm I gotta I'm gonna have I'm gonna take this job on on Empire." We can pause if you wanna. Do you need to, if you wanna take that? We can pause. No, it's a, it's a marketing. Oh, okay. It's a it's a robocall. Um, robocall. I, I guess yeah. His you know him saying, look, I, I I understand that this you know that you're gonna you're gonna take this job and and you know kind of take take the lead on. Well, what happened was, right after Star Wars, the group was still together, and and John started talking about doing Battlestar Galactica with Glenn Larson. Mm-hmm who wanted to get the Star Wars effects team together to do this movie. And Glenn Larson was kind of the, the, the king of plagiarism, you know. Oh, yeah. George, you know, was out of his mind angry about yeah. Battlestar. So, well, anyway, so we just we agreed to do with it. And, and, and my caveat was, 
okay, if you don't if you if you don't make a series out of it, and if you don't make a movie out of it, because we we decided to do it in thirty five to to make it cheaper, and 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 at first I had this terrible optical department that the union stuck me with, and I didn't have anybody that could could do a blue screenshot worth of shit, and so basically I had to. Um, well, that happened anyway. So, uh, and then I, we had we went ahead and did the the three shows, and there were some really great shots in the shows. And and the thing is that the production designer and the editor they didn't know what to ask for, so we just did the shots that we thought would be cool for the scenes, and and then they would cut them in. And uh, and there was one there was one of the one of the sequences one of the, one of the three was was the copy of the guns of Navarone, and and Glenn Larson was going around the studio with the guns of Navarone script under his arm, you know. I mean, he just lifted it, mm-hmm. and we built this we built this mo- model of of the Alpine Mountain. It was about the size of this table and about four feet high. And it had these micro balloons on it uh, for snow, and the snow was held together by you'd put the micro balloons on, then you spray alcohol, and that was, and there was enough stiction with the alcohol where it would it'd make the it would make the stuff stay like a fluffy snow, where you had to be careful and not hit the table because it would it you know, and so basically I had the action master outside using the great key light in the sky. And I was shooting at f11 at 360 frames a second, and the shot was magnificent. I mean, then we basically hit the bottom of the table with a with a hammer, <laughs> and everything collapsed. And so we had this fantastic avalanche. And I mean, I still got that footage. It's fantastic That's footage. Awesome. But anyway, so that that was. Uh, one of my favorite shots for Galactica. So anyway, I'm I'm deviating from your question. So. So anyway, we did Battlestar Galactica, and at the end of that, we 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 formed a company called MCA Fifty Seven for some stupid reason. That was the name. Of, <laughs> that was the name of the company. I think our our phone number ended in five seven five seven or something like that. So anyway, <clears throat> we um, so at the end of that project. You know, I heard that there were some rumblings going on up north, and that George was going to want to start up and do a third, do a second movie. And I told the guys, because we all formed Apogee. Mm-hmm. And I said, okay, I'm going to count me in on the company, but I just want you to know that if I get the phone call that I'm virtually certain I'm going to get, I'll be leaving. And I'd be stupid not to take this opportunity. Right. And everybody said, yeah, we we agree, you know. So that's how I left, and I got the phone call, and I and I, I sold my, I sold my piece of Apogee for twenty five hundred bucks, <laughs> and moved. Uh, I sold my house in Silver Lake and moved into a little cottage for the same money. I had this fabulous architectural house, but anyway, and spent four and a half years up at ILM and did. Empire Strikes Back, Raiders, Poltergeist, and Jedi. Cool. Oh, you know, oh. just, just, just a couple. My, of, just my childhood, right there. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you ever do anything with um, 
with like live events, do you, do you have it? Did anyone ever approach you about theme park work or anything yeah. like that? Did you ever do anything like that? I did Expo '93 for for uh, we did a ride film for Expo '93 for Lucky Gold Star, and it was the it was the it was the most attended event at the theme. At, a million people saw the show. Whoa! And that was the that was the maximum number that we could have shown it because it was it ran every 13 minutes or something like that and uh what was is that a different experience where you think of like okay so i mean it's thrilling right you're hoping yeah. to get something thrilling but it's even a little more so when it's under the guise of it's kind of like a ride it is a ride because they're on they're on these iworks i made a deal with don iworks to use their their platforms and and we uh, we shot it in VistaVision and blew the VistaVision up to up to uh, eight perf sixty five. And so did they they move. So is are they on like a gimbal? Yeah, they're on. They're hydraulically operated uh, and and they're kind of motion controlled. So they re- they repeat the same thing each time. And uh, so they they jostle the audience around. And it's a real great. It was a really great uh, deal. And we had two theaters side by side going each time so and and both shows had to be in sync because otherwise there would have been noise going through the walls because it, it was it's pretty loud you know and so basically they had the two the two theaters had to be in sync we discovered that right away <laughs> <laughs> and so that was a that was a gotta fix this problem so that must there's a learning curve right there, right? Yeah. Like learning what that's that must have been a lot of fun though, right? It was it's just one one more step in getting people to experience something they've never experienced before. Right. Um, we finished that in nineteen in ninety two, and I think we only had a four million dollar budget for that. It was a, and, and it was they got their money's worth out of it. Well, yeah, absolutely. If they got a million people to go through that thing and they yeah. maxed out attendance, um. I'm a, as Greg was saying earlier, I'm a massive Ghostbusters fan. So, first of all, thank you very much for your hard work on that because it has influenced just huge chunks of my life. Uh, so much so that after we're done here, my wife and I are driving two hours away to a haunted hotel for the weekend. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. And she's all into, she loves ghost lore, and most of my knowledge comes from it. I'm curious to know. Did you ever, there's a famed first draft of that script that Dan Aykroyd wrote that was like 400 pages long. I think it was 190. Well, okay, so, but which is still massively large yeah. for a screenplay, right? I mean, I got right? that script, that was the script that, that sent, Ivan sent me, you want to do Ghostbusters, and I said, yeah, but I don't think Columbia's going to want to spend the money that you're talking about in this script, you know. And so I wound up collaborating with Harold and 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 paring it down to what could be done for five million, because that was what the budget was. It was well, you a, put every penny of the five million up on the screen, for yeah. sure. But then about maybe a month before we were going to be finishing, Ivan wanted to add a hundred shots, <laughs> and I said, Ivan, we got to talk, you know. <laughs> And so, I mean, there's no way we can do another hundred shots. And and so he comes out, he drives out. I met him in the parking lot with my samurai sword. <laughs> so we need to, we need to do a samurai cut here, you know, Ivan. And we cut down, we got it down to I think 42 additional shots. 
Wow. Oh, there you go. And I went over by 700,000. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, a couple of years ago, I had the opportunity to interview Tom Savini at his school yeah. in Pittsburgh. And he talked about how on the set of Django Unchained, um, Tarantino had this deal where if you uh, solved an issue that a department you didn't belong to was having, you'd get five bucks. And he told the story about he was walking through set one day and it was a shot where a guy's supposed to get, I think his arm torn off or something and they weren't able to get it to work and it wasn't working and it wasn't working. And then Savini came over to Tarantino and said, you know, just dig a hole, put his arm in it, whatever. And a few minutes later, Tarantino came over and handed him a crisp $5 bill, (laughs) um, which I just, I thought is just a hilarious uh, story. Is there anything along those lines uh, incentives that you saw filmmakers do to get uh, the different departments to work against or with each other just to, to make things move along? Well, I have a story that I could tell about with John Milius. You know, oh, John, yeah. John's an old friend of mine. We used to, we're shooters. We both collect fancy English shotguns and Italian shotguns. Anyway, he said, Richard, I want you to shoot this, this scene of of these skiffs aboard, you know, arriving on the shoreline of Borneo, but we're going to shoot it in the North beach of Hawaii. And we're, I'm, and we, and we're going to wait until we get the word from this, this surf fall. There's this old surfer that, that knows the, the ocean and says, and, he, and he'll know when the big waves are going to come. And so we have, we have to be on surf alert for the next period, however long that is. So I'm going along and I've got this company I'm running and I got a few hundred employees, right? And I have to, and so basically one day I, I get the call and John says, the guy says, they're coming, man. And so I said, you mean when? He says, we need to get on the plane tomorrow. <laughs> and so, so I rounded up four cameras, three 1200,000 millimeter lenses and the, the thing the trick was that, we're, that that there were these there were three really seasoned surf uh, photographers that were good at shooting surf movies with 16 millimeter cameras and so I was going to give them three Aries to shoot 35 you know and uh, and then I had my camera that with a with a, like a 100 millimeter lens for for just another shot. And so I was going to operate that one. And, 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 and so basically, cause George had shot, I mean, sorry, John had shot big Wednesday in the North beach. And so he's like canonized by the, by the surfers that are live up there. And there's this guy named Eddie and Eddie Rothman is this little Jewish guy from Chicago that, has kind of taken over the leadership of the hui. And the hui are these surfers that are like big, tough, usually like half Hawaiian, half Samoan. You know, I mean, they're just these monster surfers, and and they, they wear these black trunks with a chartreuse stripe down the side. And if anybody sees them coming, they give them wide berth. <laughs> it's a surfer gang. You're, you're describing a surfer gang oh, instead yeah. of bikers, but surfing. Oh, yeah. We're talking, and Eddie controls these guys. <laughs> Nothing happens in the North Shore without Eddie. And he still, got, he still does it. I was just meeting with Vermilius, like, the last Sunday. We were talking about Eddie. 
and Eddie still runs the North Shore. That's fantastic. And so we get, and, and Terry Leonard, who's this fantastic uh, stunt guy, legendary, I mean, with like Yakima Canute, those, that, those, that mm-hmm. kind of level of stunt, stunt guy. Anyway, so, so, so Terry's like one of the guys in one of the skiffs, and there are these two skiffs, and they're playing these guys who have been, they've been lost at sea for, for like two weeks, and they and they they finally wash up wash up on the shores of Borneo, which is controlled at the time by the Japanese. The Japanese are controlling the 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 peri- perimeter of Borneo, but they can't go inland because the because the headhunters have these poison darts, <laughs> and they're real accurate. Oh, <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> and so, so this is this is a movie that John wrote called Farewell to the King, and it, there was a book that was written about this guy, and it was supposedly there's a it was an actual situation that happened like this. So anyway, these three these four guys that were that were on this skiff after the Battle of Corregidor, after Second World War, right during the Second World War, wash up on they they they, they come through these monstrous waves. When I was I thought these waves are like twenty feet. I mean, they're just enormous waves, 20, 25, 30 feet waves. I mean, they're just, I mean, they'd crash on the, on the shore and the cameras would shake. I mean, mm. it was like this big, big hammer hit the fl- And so basically, I wound up getting an hour of footage because the guys kept reloading and shooting and, 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 they, and, they, and they would go shooting up this, they, they would go shooting up this, the, the, uh, the face of the wave and disappear in the back. And I'd say, Oh, it's all over. And then, then there they are. <laughs> wow. And so I got, and, and not only that, but the back, the, 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 the sky was gray and there was this God light shooting through the sky. I mean, it was like, it couldn't have been a more beautiful day for this. And, and my pay, you were talking about the $5 from, I got a case of shotgun shells. Out of this. <laughs> Italian shotgun shells? Yeah, as a matter of fact, they were. They were Fiocchi's. You and my uncle would have a lot to talk about, yeah. just on the guns alone, as a matter of fact. Um, we're kind of getting close to the end here, right. but uh, and this, this podcast will be coming out after the Fargo Film Festival has wrapped up, but um, uh, maybe, Greg, uh, you could take the lead on this, too. Um, the very special reason why we have uh, Mr. Edlin here for this festival well, he's the recipient of the highest honor of the film festival in Fargo. It's called the Ted M. Larson Award, and that's named after the professor of film studies who started teaching four-credit classes you know, in the 1960s at a time when, when you'd have to be on the coast to, get, to be able to get college credit for film studies. And he, you know, he, was, uh, he was a mentor to many people, including myself. And so um, I, I don't know how old I was when I learned Richard, that you were born in Fargo, but I, I thought, I've, and I've, I've, I'm sure I've told this story many times to different people, but I thought, it, 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 it struck me. I mean, it, it, it kind of awestruck me that it seemed like suddenly things were possible because, um, you know, you were from the same town. And, uh, and so we, I think we used the line, and, and in fact, Efren Ramirez, who was at the Fargo Film Festival last night, said, uh, just a different version of you is the line, right? That's also the, you know, used in the Norman Lear as the title of the Norman Lear documentary. 
uh, it's on Norman Lear had a bumper sticker on his car that said just a different version of you as a way to think about, you know, um, that, that you shouldn't be bound by, you know, limitations you place on, on yourself. So right. we've, you know, we've been, we've wanted to make this happen for a long time. And finally, you know, the, the, the timing, the timing worked out for a return visit because how, when's the last time you were in, in Fargo? It's about 10 years ago. Been about 10 my, years. My, my cousin Joe uh, hosted a family uh, yes. reunion. Mm-hmm. So I came back for that. Yeah. And your cousin Joe and family members are going to come to the show tonight. Joe and his tonight. wife Joyce and, and I think either, either his brother Roger or one other. Yeah. It could be four, but it's probably wow. three. Uh-huh. So that's that's uh, in a nutshell why we're we're graced by the presence of, of Richard Edland. Well, and Ted, the Ted Larson award is not one that just gets awarded every year. It's um, there've right. been gaps where it just wasn't mm-hmm. awarded because there wasn't a well, candidate. And I don't know if, if Richard knows this, but some of the other recipients of this award include Leonard Malton and Janet Lee, George Romero, Janet Lee, Janet Lee. Yeah. Right. She, because she came to Fargo with the library of Congress film preservation tour and made Ted's acquaintance and they kind of became friendly and nice. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so John, John Waters, uh, and George Romero, you know, are two pretty well-known filmmakers who've accepted the award. So it doesn't always go to a, you know, a famous person, but it goes to a noteworthy, a, a person who's made contributions to the industry or to film education and in the case of Richard Edland, you know, it hits absolutely every criteria you could imagine and then some. Yeah. Are there filmmakers out there right now that you're up and coming that you're really interested in or films that are coming out these days that excite you? Uh, well, I have a, I have a, a graphic. I, I have a novel that I've owned the rights to for many years called The Forever War. Oh, I've heard. Of, yeah, okay. That's that's set up at Columbia. I mean, sorry, at at, at Warner's now, with Channing Tatum, but we have to get a script that's good, okay. and we don't have one yet. So we're can, still working on. Can't you be like, hey, Ch- I've got a Gambit movie for you, Channing? Because I know that's he's been trying to get that movie off the ground for a couple of years, but now with that acquisition, I don't know if that's going to happen. I don't know. Anyway, he's perfect for the role. So, <laughs> well, l- listen, let's wrap this up with something I wanted to say to you this whole time. I saw Poltergeist for the first time ever on VHS at a sleepover with some friends. And I was so freaked out that I peed in my sleeping bag (laughs) and had to go home with James because I was not going to walk by the television to get to the restroom. And so thank you so much for making fourth grade unbearable for me. That's that's such a great anecdote. Third grade? It's fourth, it fourth, fourth, fourth grade, fourth grade for, right. for JJ. So, and the and and to tag on to that, and I and I shared this story with Richard earlier. Uh, during 2010, the year we make contact, I was in the back of the Safari Theater having my first kiss in a in a movie. But I, I told him I always made sure to watch all the the special effects parts. So, so just doing the boring my, talking parts. That's when you were smooching. I was yeah. pretty afraid of the rancor so, at the very beginning, but that was about it. There you, you know. go. Well. Yeah, thanks for thanks well, for making uh, our lives all the richer and all the more fantastic. Well, thanks for buying tickets. I'll, oh, we'll yeah, gladly. You know, because you you are our patrons. Without without uh, avid ticket buyers, we wouldn't, you know, have a job. <laughs> <laughs>
A huge thanks to Natalie Deutsch of Hatch Realty for sponsoring this podcast. Folks, if you're looking to buy or sell a home, contact Natalie Deutsch today because Natalie Deutsch is not only a previous podcast guest, she's somebody who's going to care enough to sell your property for top dollar. She's also going to find you the best price possible if you're purchasing a new home. Last year on average, Natalie earned her clients $4,000 over list price on their homes and sold them faster than the market average. On average, Natalie's selling a home every 3.74 days. That's two homes a week. Those numbers don't lie. Find out why Natalie is one of the top agents in this entire market. Get a hold of her today, natalie at hatchrealityfm.com. You can also call 701-388-9338 or go on to livefargomorehead.com. That's livefargomorehead.com. Read all of her amazing reviews and then listen to her episode of JJ Meets World. Thanks again to Natalie Deutsch of Hatch Realty. That's going to wrap it up for today's show. If you enjoyed this episode of JJ Meets World and would like to help us continue to produce two new episodes every week, you can donate to our Patreon. Check out patreon.com slash JJ Meets World and donate today. Even as little as a dollar a month can go a long way. Visit our website at www.jjmeetsworld.com or hit up our social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all the sites the kids are using these days. If you'd like to stay up to date on new episodes of JJ Meets World, you can find us on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, YouTube, or wherever you consume the podcast that you love. JJ Meets World is produced every week by Tucker Lucas. You can find out more about Tucker's work by checking out www.moonbasemaria.com. If you want to get in touch with your host with the most, go to linebenders.com and you can find direct contact info for JJ. I actually um, peed my pants at a couple of sleepovers and um, one of them one of them was because my friend's parents' faces melted off like they did in Raiders, so I guess I should have brought that up too.